Let's launch into another week of our four-and-a-half-year verse-by-verse journey through all of God's inspired Word by opening our Bibles to the little book of Jude. Now, this book is rather interesting because it has as its body kind of a repeating of a lot of the material from 2 Peter chapters 2 and 3. And I don't think that's accidental. I think that Jude had read 2 Peter, and I think he was prompted by the Holy Spirit to include some of this material that was going out at this particular time. Now, we know that Peter seems to have written shortly before his death, so I put uh, 2 Peter somewhere around 63, maybe early 64. I believe that Peter was dead by the, I think, the end of 65 after uh, the Neronian persecutions began. And so I would tend to place Jude's writing somewhere right at the beginning of 66. So more than likely, just a few years have passed since Peter sent his letter out targeting the area of Asia Minor, uh, what we call Western Turkey today. And Jude, as we'll see, was concerned that a lot of the false teaching that had been warned about was really starting to move forward all over the place. So let's read what uh, he has to say for us. Jude, only one chapter, verse number one. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now, the James that he refers to is not James the Apostle, brother of John the Apostle, cousins of of Jesus, but rather James the half-brother of Jesus, whom Jesus made into the leader of the... Jewish church there at Jerusalem. Now, James had been executed uh, by the Jewish authorities right around 61, I'd say. Uh, So he is already several years gone by the time that Jude writes this. But we know then that Jude is also a half-brother of Jesus. Now, he doesn't mention Jesus as his brother, neither does James. Uh, because they understand that Jesus' centrality as the atoning sacrifice for sin, as the resurrected Savior and Lord, supersedes any type of physical relationship they had with him through their mother, Mary. Uh, But it doesn't stop Jude from mentioning his apparently older brother, James. Then he puts in here who this is for. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So he doesn't have a regional uh, representation here in this. I think it's possible that this was a much broader letter, like, for example, the book of James, sent out uh, to a wide variety of people. But he does mention that they're believers. They are beloved by God, they've been called by God, and they're being kept in Jesus Christ. And then he gives 
this salutation. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. All sorts of, uh, of Christian-oriented uh, things that we would wish upon one another. Then he explains why he's sitting down and writing this. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, so originally he was thinking about writing about the faith as a whole, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So now he feels he has to make a defensive sort of letter because he's seeing all the things that have been warned of by the now dead apostles like his brother James, like Paul, like Peter, and apparently like pretty much all of the apostles of the Lamb with the exception of John the Apostle. They're all gone. So he says, we need all of you to be contending for the faith in Jesus Christ that was once for all delivered to us. Because, verse 4, certain people have crept in unnoticed. Uh, the wording is kind of like our idea of infiltration. They have intentionally come into the church in order to exercise their ideals who long ago were designated for this condemnation. So they will be condemned for their illicit infiltration of the church. And it was already prophesied about. Uh, ungodly people, the idea of ungodly here being they don't act like God wants them to act, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. Now, grace, of course, is the unmerited favor that comes to us through Jesus Christ. Sensuality is the idea, I can do whatever I want to, it doesn't matter. It's a license uh, that is supposedly already in place uh, so that sin doesn't matter. Now, this is problematic. Uh, we know that there were various false teachings that plagued the church from the very beginning. Uh, Judaizing was one that was a really big problem, where Jewish believers in Jesus, Pharisee types, were insisting that Gentiles had to convert to Judaism before they could be saved. This group that is being referenced here are those that are saying, you know what? What you do with your body is already forgiven. It's already taken care of by the grace of Jesus Christ. Uh, these are the precursors of the Gnostics that we're going to be talking about uh, very soon when we slide over into the writings of the Apostle John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, where they believed that all flesh was evil, and so you couldn't control it, and all spirit was good, and it couldn't be contaminated by the physical side of the equation. And so these, these infiltrators, these false teachers, are basically giving people a license to carry on as they always did in a sinful fashion. And by doing that, 
he goes on, he says, and they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So they are basically blowing Jesus off. Remember, we were just finished the book of Hebrews, which that was a problem, is that Jesus kind of being set aside in the minds of a few people because there was persecution involved with him. Well, if you believe that your body can do anything it wants to, why would you need Jesus as a regular component in your life? You wouldn't. And so this is a denial of him. Now, he writes, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, and this is where the English Standard Version, I think, veers off from where they should be in their standards. Uh, the name Jesus does not appear in the vast majority of the ancient manuscripts at this point. It actually just says, the Lord. I think I only ran across a Latin manuscript when I was checking this out that has the name Jesus specifically in it. Uh, and it is clear that this is a reference to God at the time of the Exodus. And while Jesus most certainly was there in his pre-incarnate existence, it wasn't Jesus our Lord uh, that we should think of being involved in this passage. It says, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that the Lord who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, who was that? The Israelis. Afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. Now, this is where we start paralleling perfectly with 2 Peter chapter 2. These are the exact same examples that he uses. So, the Israeli people were saved out of Egypt by God miraculously, but then because of their unbelief, because of their rebelliousness, they ended up coming under his judgment. So it's not a once saved, always saved situation, and it most certainly isn't, hey, what you do doesn't matter to God because you're, you're saved by him. Verse number six. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority or within their specific domain, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains unto gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And so that's a reference to the Genesis chapter 6 story, where some of the angels who had already rebelled against God uh, rebelled even farther by messing around with the human genome in the, in the bodies of the women in this pre-flood era, and God didn't let them slide. It didn't matter that he once had them as his angelic ministers. They had now gone rogue. They had now gone to the dark side, if you will, and they will pay the penalty. In fact, they've already been put on ice, or here, put in chains until the, the judgment day when they will be thrown into the place we call hell, which was designed specifically for them and their eternal incarceration. Again, exactly as Peter used as his examples. Verse 7, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, so Ad Adma and Zeboim, uh, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality 
and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So Sodom and Gomorrah, the five cities of the plain, uh, they were a place that benefited greatly from uh, the lovely uh, environment that was in the southern Jordan Valley at that time. Uh, but it didn't matter. Once they sinned, once they started crossing lines that God never intended to be crossed, they were done. And they served as an example of judgment. So, the lesson to be learned, Jude says, is basically, you can't just do whatever you want. Your past relationship with God is not a guarantee of your future relationship with him. If you sin, you will pay the penalty. And so these false teachers infiltrating the church with their false uh, encouragement to just let your body do whatever it wants, they will come under judgment. Now, he describes a little bit more some of their problems. Verse 8, Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, so they're into the occult idea that I'm going to get this dream, I'm going to get this message from the supernatural, and I'll act on that, rather than sticking with the inspired word of God. So, these people, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh. So they're engaged in illicit sexual behavior, among other things. And they reject authority. Uh, they reject the authority of the church. They reject the authority of the apostles, of Scripture, all of that. And they blaspheme the glorious ones. Uh, that's the angelic world. Apparently, these guys thought they were stronger than angels. They could boss angels around. Believe it or not, we actually have people who claim to be Christians today that think they can boss angels around with power words. But, Jude says, when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, uh, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but simply said, Yahweh rebuke you. He who is rebuke you. Uh, now, this, in some people's minds, is a reference to an apocryphal Jewish writing from the first century B.C. called the, uh, the uh, Assumption of Moses or the, the Testimony of Moses. The reality is, though, we don't have any such text from that book that says anything like this. Now, there's some people that claim that it said something like this, but the claims are showing up somewhere in the 5th century. So we don't have any authentic evidence that this is the source of Jude's comments. I think it's much more likely that Jude is referencing the book of Zechariah, chapter number 3, where the prophet Zechariah uh, was shown Joshua the high priest, who was the representation of the Jewish people in that era of the um, Second Temple, the building of the Second Temple. And uh, he represented, if you will, the body of Moses, because that was the Jewish people following the Mosaic Law. 
And so Joshua was shown to Zechariah the priest standing before the angel of the Lord. I think that's Michael, because he is the angel assigned to the Jewish people. And then Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So all the elements that Jude mentions are right here so far. And then, verse number two, he who is said to Satan, and I think it's the angel of he who is that's represented here, said, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? So we have the angel of God, probably Michael, telling Satan to basically knock it off, but he doesn't use his own authority to do it. He says, Yahweh will deal with you. And so I think that's the better reference that we should think of from the book of Jude. Uh, the point, though, is this. If the most powerful angel of the Jewish nation, Michael, won't himself call down Satan, but will let God be the authority that does that. Um, where do these false teachers, these infiltrators, get the idea that they can boss angels around? It, it just does not follow. Verse 10 uh, of Jude. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So these people are flying by the seat of their pants. They're doing whatever they feel like. And it is causing nothing but trouble for themselves and the people around them. Verse 11, he puts a curse on them. Woe to them. Alas for them. For they have walked in the way of Cain. Cain. Remember, Cain uh, was the first one that God called down for having a bad attitude. Well, these guys have bad attitudes and they're being called down. And They've abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Remember, Balaam used to be a prophet of the one true God back in uh, the days of Moses, uh, there at the time, at the end of the Exodus period, uh, the wilderness experience. And uh, he, he was willing to accept wealth in order to violate God's intention of blessing Israel, not cursing them. And so these guys, apparently, they're willing to do whatever it takes to make a buck or a denarius. And they perished in Korah's rebellion. Uh, if you're not familiar with Korah's rebellion, uh, that's mentioned over in Numbers 16. It's basically some relatives of, of Aaron and Moses that thought that they should be in charge of stuff and uh, they end up being swallowed up by the earth uh, in God's judgment against them. And so the illustration that Jude is using here, and they're all straight out of Peter's uh, second letter, second chapter, are these guys are just troublemakers looking out for themselves, and God will judge them. Here's some more descriptors that are similar to what... Uh, Peter used. Verse 12, these are hidden reefs. So, you know, the rocks just below the surface 
of a body of water that you can run aground on and rip the bottom of your boat out. There are hidden reefs at your love feasts. That's the fellowship dinner that was part of the weekly gathering of the saints during this time period. As they feast with you without fear. So they think everything's fine and they get to just eat with you and even grab some of the bigger pieces, you know. Shepherds feeding themselves. So instead of feeding the flock, they're feeding themselves. Waterless clouds, you know, with a promise of rain, but they never pay out. Swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and then uprooted. So they should have fruit hanging on them, but they don't. And so now they've been pulled up. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, Uh, So that's the illustration of, you know, those big waves that hit the rocky shoreline and they just throw a bunch of stuff up and make a big bunch of foam and a big bunch of noise. Uh, And that's what these guys are doing. They're making a big mess of their life and of the lives around them. Wandering stars. Uh, That's actually a reference to planets. Planet means wandering one. Uh, And the thing was that the planets, because they're a lot closer to us, uh, they kind of um, have a different motion across the sky than a star does. So he says, these guys are like wandering stars. They don't follow the norm. That is the norm of Jesus Christ. For whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. That's kind of a throwback to the angel comment uh, because um, stars are sometimes used as a symbol for angels. And so what's going to happen to the angels that went away from God? Uh, They will end up in hell. What will happen against these infiltrating false prophets if they don't repent? They will end up in hell. Verse 14, which quotes from the legitimate portion of what we call the book of Enoch today. Now, this is what I believe. I believe the book of Enoch uh, started with the very first portion of chapter 1 as the core that was authentic, and then it was expanded from there, uh, kind of like a piece of, um, of religious fiction. So I have no trust in the larger portion of the book of Enoch, and I don't think you should have either. But this part is authentic. Verse 14, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, he's the one that was taken away by God. I think he's going to be one of the two witnesses in Revelation 11. That's my opinion. He prophesied back at that time, back before the flood. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgments on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, do you see the key word that keeps getting repeated over and over again? Ungodly, not acting like God, not acting in God's purposes. And so Jesus Christ was seen prophetically by Enoch coming in the clouds of glory with his angels, with his saints, 
for ultimate judgment. And that judgment will fall upon these infiltrators of the first century and of all the centuries since. False teachers, unless they repent, face the judgment of Christ. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. So they're trying to take control. And then Jude gives us the remedy. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, like Second Peter, for example. They said to you, in the last days there will be scoffers following their ungodly passions. That's actually a quote from Second Peter. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. So they're not saved, they are lost. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, so sticking with the fundamentals, sticking with the gospel, sticking with scripture, sticking with salvation, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So that's the second coming. That's the next big event on our Christian calendar. So we keep our eyes in the sky. While we do that, verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt. The ones that are like, not sure what's going on here. You know, those are the ones that are on our target list for salvation. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. You know, some of them are in big trouble right now, so they have an immediate need for us to try to intervene. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. When we work with people that are caught up in the sins of the world, we have to be careful we don't get drug in to their world. We're trying to bring them into the world of Jesus. Uh, my best example of this is uh, the idea of water, um, uh, water rescues. You don't get near the person that's drowning lest they drown you. You take all sorts of other precautions to get them saved because you don't want to get lost yourself. Let's finish it up. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And that is certainly a good wish and a good way to end this little bitty book. God bless you. See you next time we get together.